Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. All right, if you need a Bible, you're going to raise your hand. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're plugging along with the parables that Jesus is teaching. I've titled this teaching, I've already told you this will be a hard teaching, but this teaching is called Fake Christianity. I want to say it to you again, Fake Christianity. Um, And so we're going to be starting in verse 36. So turn there, chapter 13, Matthew 13, verse 36. Y'all doing good? You excited? You love me? All right. I just need to know that before I teach this. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. It'll be all good. It'll be all good. If you're listening online to our podcast, we now stream our Wednesday nights on our webpage. So if you're listening online right now, welcome. We're glad that you joined us and hopefully you'll get your Bible out as well. All right. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 36. Let's read it together. Then he left the crowd and he went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of who? The evil one, the wicked one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. Verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up, and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And he who has ears, let him hear. I got one amen. I'm liking that. I'm encouraged. Thank you. (laughs) That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about, well, what in the world does that parable mean? We're also going to talk about what it means to be, uh, to identify what a true believer is. And we're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about who's responsible to judge and who is not responsible to judge, uh, especially into the church. Now, up on the screen, I have the first slide. And I think it's real important because notice that the disciples said, hey, Jesus, hold on a minute. Jesus just taught this to the public, right? And they're saying, hold on, Jesus. Um, When they got into the house alone with them, they said, wait a minute, you need to explain this parable again. So I want to go over this so that we're all, and you can underline in your Bible and highlight, you can just write little notes what this means. And so that you know, but let's look at this first slide. It says in this, in the verses that we read, the field represents what? The world, okay? And then the good seeds, this parable is, represents God's true people. In other words, true Christians, true believers, true Christ followers. These, this, isn't, this isn't the people that are sitting on the fence. They just go to church. These are true believers, faithful, consistent. The weeds, as we read, represents the false believers in 
the world. And so notice that the disciples are saying, Jesus, explain this parable. Again, this is getting a little bit confusing. And um, they weren't quite sure because we know that earlier in chapter 13, and we did cover it a little bit last week when I taught, it, it was a parable of what? The soils. Remember the different soils, the thorny soil, the rocky soil, right? The good soil where the seeds to be planted. You remember that? We just briefly touched on that. And so they're thinking in their mind, wait a minute, you attributed these things to the soils. But in the parable of soils, the seed represented what? You remember? The word of God. The word of God, the seed that is planted, the gospel, the, the, the word of God, the powerful word of God. But here we see the seed is now going to represent the true believers. So I want you to know the, the difference between these two parables in chapter 13 is that the soil, get this, shows how men receive and respond to the word of God. It's what do they do with the gospel when it is taught? And each one of us has to give that account. And so that's one thing, but this parable shifts gears a little bit. The parable of the weeds of the field shows how God and God alone will divide, get this, his true people from false believers. People that are never truly bought in to Christ as their savior. And he says, this will happen at the end of the age. In other words, the rapture, right? And so this parable, I want you to understand as you read this, this parable reminds us that it is God's job to divide and judge, not ours. In no way, shape, or form does this parable say that we are to judge. In fact, one of the dangers that I want to talk to you about tonight in the church that can cause quite a bit of damage if the people within the church develop is this judgmental attitude towards one another. Have you ever been in a church where that's happened? Have you ever been in a church where you just, you don't measure up, you don't look the right way, you don't dress the right way, you don't serve the right way, your lifestyle's not right according to them? You ever been there? It's, it's a very lonely place to be. And, and, it, and so we, we have to be careful that we, as a people of God, especially in this body, because this is, this is the field that God's given me, as we learned last week, to, to minister and to shepherd, is that we, the people, the church, that we don't create this judgmental attitude towards one another within the building, within our, our congregation. It's not our job to judge. This is clearly saying that it's God's job to judge. Now you think, well, well, I don't do that. Hold on a minute before you, you resolve that you don't. What do you mean by judging someone? What does that look like? Well, here's just a couple examples of how you and I may come across as judgmental to others that, that are with us in the body. Maybe sometimes we impose our righteousness upon others around me that we've been walking with the Lord and that we were so puffed up in our own righteousness that we've accomplished and overcome so much and that we are so close to the Lord and why aren't you? Why aren't you as spiritual as me? Why don't you have your life all worked out? 
to glorify God the way I have. Do you, can you think of anybody in the Bible that used to impose their judgment on others? Who were they? The Pharisees. Do you remember the prayer that the Pharisee prayed? God, I'm glad that I'm not like them or that I don't pray like them. They were lofty in their own heart and in their own mind. What does it look like? What does judgment look like in the church? People think or expect others to live and act and to be just like them. We have to be careful with that. And I've been a part of that. I've seen that. And, I, and that's probably one of the things when I first got saved, that when I walked into the church for the first time, my heart was racing because I knew that I was a sinner, I knew that I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't belong in the church. Like, how could I walk into a church a wretched man as I? My condition of wretchedness, when I walked into the church for the first time, I was fully aware of that. And I didn't need anybody else in the church to point that out to me. I didn't need anybody else in the church, as I'm trying to find out who God is, to point that out or to impose a religiosity on me in any way, shape, or form. You get me? Are you with me, church? We have to be so careful that our, that our mannerisms do not manifest out to others in, in that way. And, and, and I'm not saying we're a church that does that. That's like I said, sometimes when I'm preaching on Wednesday, I'm like, I got the wrong crowd here. <laughs> but it's good to be reminded because I think you and I can sway that way sometimes if we're honest with ourselves. We have to be very mindful of those that are around us. Maybe another way that we could come across as judging others is that our personal convictions that the Holy Spirit has shown me, well, I place those convictions on everyone else. I'll give you an example. Yes, we have this. This tells us how to live our life. We're not gonna argue this doctrine, are we? But there are some gray areas in here if, you're, if we're honest. There are some gray areas that takes study, and, and you can just pull one scripture anywhere out of here, right? By the way, I brought my, my first Bible that I got, and there's tabs all over it. I'm gonna tell you a story about that in a minute. They still have tabs, okay? This was my first Bible. But I want you to be careful because I was a Christian. I was saved. I repented of my sin I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was going to church, but I still liked my beer. And I didn't get drunk, but I would still have a couple beers. Now, the Bible says that we're not to get drunk on wine, but to get drunk on what? The Holy Spirit. You see the gray area. I don't care who you ask. You'll get a different answer every time. Well, can you drink wine? Can you have a glass of wine during dinner? Can you have a glass of wine with your wife on your anniversary? Can you sit at a bar and drink four beers? What about five? I don't get drunk on five. I've been drinking all my life. <laughs> you laugh. What I mean by being judgmental is when the Holy Spirit told me, Dave, I've got a better plan for your life and you're gonna start serving. Guess what ministry he called me to serve in? Altar counseling, praying with people who have given their life to Christ. And he spoke to me and said, David, your beer days are over. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do what you're going to do. 
And so therefore, because of the personal conviction of the Holy Spirit, I stopped drinking. You know what the danger is? It's if, if I literally come up to one of you and go, how dare you drink a glass of wine? How dare you have a beer? Right? That's what I'm talking about, about personal conviction and judgment of the Holy Spirit. There are other gray areas. I don't have time to go on. We'd have fun. That'd be a comedy night. <laughs> and if you think that you're sitting here and you don't have gray areas in your life, you've been challenged by the Holy Spirit. But I will encourage you, the Holy Spirit will guide you to the Scripture and he will decipher what you are to do. He will pinpoint in your life what you need to change. And he will do it like a gentleman. Because that's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You want to talk about judged. I, I got this Bible. It's in terrible shape, and I don't care. But I got this Bible as a new believer, and I went to the bookstore at Calvary Chapel, Melbourne. I bought my tabs because I had no idea where John was. We didn't have the fancy screen where it goes. <laughs> Pastor Mark would go, if you failed to bring your Bible. You know, like that's the expectation, bring your Bible. And I would turn and I'd feel so embarrassed sitting next to Danny here. Because Danny, Danny's just like, the book of John, here I am, because I know it. And I'm sitting next to him, and I'm going, please don't let me turn to the index in the front of the Bible. <laughs> and so I had these tabs, and I was in the school of ministry, and this was my favorite Bible, and I was walking, I was working as a volunteer at the church before I came on staff, and one of the families, they're no longer here anymore, one of the family's kids she was a young girl, bless her heart. She was 18. She came up to me and she said, aren't you in the school ministry? Aren't you studying to be a pastor? I go, yeah, she goes, you think you can graduate from your tabs by now? <laughs> bless her heart. Bless mine for not opening my mouth. I was embarrassed. I was offended, and I felt judged, and it affected me. And I went out and bought another Bible because I didn't want anybody to accuse me of that ever again. You see, they based their righteousness on me. That's what I'm talking about, judging others. We have to be very, very careful, church, what we say and what we do. And as mature believers, I know we have a room full as mature believers, we have to be careful that our expectation on others, others that are new to the Lord, we need to realize they're not as mature as us. They haven't had the history. They haven't made the mistakes that we've made that we don't put on our cloak. Here are all my mistakes. We hide them inside our jacket, our blazer, made of polyester. But inside, if we open them up, there's this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, this failure, this fall, right? We become mature by our mistakes. We learn. We need to be patient with new people walking into this church. We need to be gentle. We need to not cast expectations on them. We need to make sure that our religiosity does not reek like 
10 squirts of perfume before you leave the house and come into this place. Legalism has no place in this church. The Bible says that each person is to work out their own salvation. That's the beauty of walking with the Lord. We are working out our own salvation with the Lord. We are all conformed to what? The image of him. The Bible says that glory to glory, day to day, we become more like him. It's a process. And this process is a big word. It's called sanctification. We are sanctified, but we are sanctified at different stages, aren't we? We need to be mindful. We need to not judge. We need to be careful of that. So you and I have the respect do you and I have the responsibility to judge someone else's life? I have it up on the screen, James 4.12. Look what it says. God alone, who gave the law, is what? The judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. This is what Matthew 13, verse 40 is saying. He alone, not you. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor, he says. You get it? It's God's job to judge. Romans 14, 13, I have it up. Look what it says. But I tell you that what? Everyone. Is that you? Is that me? Everyone will have to give an account on the day of what? Judgment. So we learn two things from these verses. One, God is the one who judges, rightfully so. And two, we will all stand before him for his judgment on us. Some of you are like, I want to live forever. I don't want to go to judgment. I don't either. What is he talking about in this verse? See, this day of judgment is meeting with God. We're going to, each and every one of us will have that appointment. We will face one judgment or another. The first judgment that I want to tell you about is the judgment seat of Christ. You can write that down. Judgment seat of Christ. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Let me read it to you. For we must all, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. So you understand that that judgment, that first judgment that God has a right to do with each and every one of us is one for believers. It's one for true believers. It's one where God judges what we did with the gifts he gave us. It's how do we treat people? How do we handle situations? What did we do with our time? What did we do with our talents, our gifts? What did we do with our finances? Did we increase the kingdom or were we lazy true believers? That's basically what that judgment is for. The bad judgment that it's saying whether good or bad, that's not up for debate like you get three bad strikes, you're going to hell. That's not what that's about. But we will give an account. 
as believers, and I'll use my example, I stopped drinking many, 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 20 years ago, but I drank a 12-pack on Christmas Eve after three services, right? So if that happened, then God will probably show me that. He'll say, but David, you got drunk here. Now, was the price of that sin paid for me as a true believer? Sure was. I'm still eternal, you understand? And I don't quite know what that looks like. I'm not God, and I'm not trying to figure out the org chart up in heaven. Maybe I have to go lower to the basement, or maybe I'm put next to noisy neighbors, I don't know. But I'm aiming for the penthouse with a view, right? So I'm not drinking that beer. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying here? That's, that's one judgment. The second judgment that I wanna to talk to you about, and I want you to write this down, is the white throne of judgment. The white throne of judgment. Now this judgment involves unbelievers. Those who live independently throughout this world, independent from the Lord. It's for those who never accept Jesus Christ. They never accepted his free offer of a new life in him. And, he, and, and God's a God of grace and mercy, and the Bible assures us that he gives everybody, every person on the earth, even in Dakar, Africa, even four hours in the middle of the bush, these little kids will hear the gospel. They will have an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. The Bible says that it's, it's God's desire that no one perishes. The gospel message will go out to all. In America, we have every opportunity to receive Christ. Whether you step one foot in a church or whether you see it on TV or thousands of websites and preaching at your fingertips on your iPhone. Everyone has the opportunity. This white throne of judgment is for people that go, nah, no thanks, Jesus. I'll do it my way. And Jesus warns us to what that day of judgment will look like. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter seven. Just back a couple chapters. Matthew chapter seven. We've already reviewed this last year, but I'm gonna refresh your memory what this judgment looks like. Jesus warns us about this. Y'all there, look up at me and turn to verse 21. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, what day, church? The judgment day. Many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, I did all these great things for you, Jesus. Where's my fruit salad? Where's my Jesus military pin? I did all these good things for you. Look what Jesus says in verse 23. Then I will plainly tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you what? You evildoers. You see the correlation between this and Matthew 13 tonight? 
This is exactly what Jesus is telling these disciples in the parable in Matthew 13. Now, what Jesus demonstrates in what we just read in this verse is that simply he won't have anything to do with fake Christianity. He won't tolerate it. Turn away from me, he said, I never knew you. And you may be thinking, but Pastor Dave, how could this happen? How could a God that's so loving say that to someone and send them eternally into a place that was made for the demons and not people called hell? Well, here's some of the things that you might relate to or see. We do all the right things, but for the wrong motives. We're works and performance driven so that others will see how good we are. Maybe we do it for attention. Maybe we have wrong motives. We wanna be in charge. We wanna climb a ladder. We wanna impress people. And Jesus is saying here, you say you obeyed, you said you come with a nice resume of what you did for the kingdom, but what he's really saying is your heart was so far away from me. You weren't intimate with me. I never knew you. You never received me. You might as well joined a 4-H club or a golf club or a bingo club or whatever club. You did great things in that club, but you never invested your true life in it. Outwardly, he says, you look like a superstar, but inwardly, you were fake. You were 100% fake. You were counterfeit. I never knew you because you never received me. You say, well, Pastor David, that's pretty strong. Are there really fake people in the church? (laughs) Really? Those of you who've been in the church long enough know, you know that there are fake people in the church. And that's why Jesus taught the disciples this passage. This is why it's in the Bible for us to read tonight. You know, I recently had a conversation. I was trying for the life of me to remember. It seems like this week has just been crazy, 80 miles an hour, and and that's all good. But I had a conversation this week. It might have been you sitting in here. I can't remember. But it was with someone, and and, um, she said they stayed away from attending church because of the behavior of their Christian coworkers in their workplace. She said, David, they go out to bars, they pick up people, they take them home, they sleep with them, they brag about it at work, they cuss, they cheat our boss. They're no witness at all. And if JC comes out of their mouth, it's for the wrong reason. And they said, that's why I've stayed away from church for so long, because that was my idea of a Christian. And we've all been there. And some of us have used those excuses not to address our own sin and our need of a Savior. That was my excuse. That's what I told my wife for 14 years. I don't have to go to church to be a hypocrite. I can be a hypocrite right here and love it in my own home. So what is it true? So you're like, so what? So what's the point here? I want to talk to you about 
what we can look at. What is the ideal image? What does a true, true believer look like, right? According to what Jesus is saying here. Because there's not one of us that want to hear, away from me, you evildoer. I hope no one in this room, including myself, hears that, right? Like, woe to you. (laughs) I don't want to hear that. So I think it's important that we learn how to identify what a true believer really looks like according to the scriptures that God gives us. So how do we identify a true believer from a fake Christian, is how I put it. And um, Michelle's just gonna put them up one at a time. Michelle, I'm just gonna talk about one and then, I'm gonna, and then I'll say next. But put the first one up there. And you might wanna take a picture of this at the very end or write them down individually, that's good. Number one. A true believer's heart is changed forever. In other words, there is evidence in this person's life that he's a new believer or a believer. Jeremiah 32, 39 says, the Lord says, I will give them one heart and one way and they may fear me forever. That word fear is not like I'm afraid of God. I hope he doesn't come sit next to me at church on Sunday, okay? That's not what that fear means. What that fear means is there's a reverential fear for who he is and what he did and who he sent called Jesus Christ for you and I. And because of our appreciation, because of our adoration, we wanna glorify him. That's what he's talking about here. See, a true believer becomes a new creation with new desires and a new mind and, most importantly, a new heart. The Bible says that God takes the heart of stone and he replaces it with a new one. One that is filled with his love. One that is filled with his spirit. The second way that we can identify a true believer is that a true believer demonstrates an ongoing changed life. I should have underlined that word ongoing. That's that sanctification process that I talked to you about. It's an ongoing lifestyle of following God. You see, true believers love Jesus Christ and they want to keep his commandments for his sake, to honor him, True believers seek to serve him and to know him and to bring glory to his name. They're embarrassed if they're out in the open and they're sinning and people see that and they know they're Christians. They would never put themselves in that situation because of their adoration for their savior, King Jesus. I put it this way. Fake Christians or hypocrites contemporarily clean up on the outward behavior to be seen by men, but it doesn't last long. Eventually, if you're not a true believer and you're faking it till you make it, your, your true self will, will be exposed. God loves people that much that he'll finally go, I've warned you, I've warned you, I've warned you, the Holy Spirit's told you, he's told you, and he's told you, and you're not listening, and now you're, you're truly gonna be exposed, right? Several passages all throughout the Bible talks about that. Third, a true believer submits to the righteousness of God. 
not the righteousness of the pastor, not the expectations of the membership of the church. You get the difference? It's a true believer is willing to submit to the righteousness of God, all the things of him. A true believer abandons all hope in himself and his own righteousness, and he rests wholly in the righteousness of Jesus and Jesus alone. It is in Jesus' righteousness that we, can, that we have hope and that we know that we, are, we have nothing to offer him, but he accepts it anyways because our eyes are on him. We walk in his righteousness. Why? Because Christ's righteousness came in to live inside us. And so it testifies that we can truly walk in his righteousness. By submitting to God's righteousness, a true believer does not, hear me, because we walk in Christ's righteousness, a true believer does not struggle to obey God. I'm gonna say it again. A true believer does not struggle to obey this. Now, I'm, you're sitting here going, that's heavy. And I agree, it is heavy. I'm not talking about a lifestyle before Jesus where there's an addiction involved, am I? I believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit can remove any sin, any addiction, anything. There is nothing that man and woman cannot have removed by the Holy Spirit. I believe that. I've experienced that myself. Desires are gone. Addictions are gone. Satan, you are a footstool. Okay? But don't be confused. Temptation always comes. There's not one person in this room that is not tempted to sin against God. That's an amen. We are all tempted. But if we walk in God's righteousness, then we will not struggle in that temptation. I will not struggle in temptation if I'm walking in God's righteousness. And if I know the power of his righteousness in me to say no to that temptation. Because the Bible says that when temptation comes, that he will always provide a way out. Always. You say, well, my temptation's different. No, it's not. Your temptation is no greater than the power of this word. You need to believe that. You need to stop making excuses. I need to stop making excuses. Well, I can tell you a story that would convince you that that's wrong. No. There is no temptation that the power of this word cannot keep you from obeying God. Romans 10.3. <laughs> Since they did not know the righteousness of God, he's talking about unbelievers, right? Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see how that ties it all in? Last, how we can identify what a true believer really looks like is. A true believer is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Pastor Mark loves teaching on this. I've been here 20 years Every time he teaches on the Holy Spirit, I never get tired of that. The Holy Spirit 
can be talked about in my book every day, and I would rejoice and be walking on cloud nine because it is all about the Holy Spirit that changes us. People can tell, so what does that look like in a true believer? People can tell you're different by your actions. People can tell that you are different from the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Sometimes the demeanor of just peace upon you will be identified by another believer. And it won't be from a congregant member that knows you. Oh, you're in the front row and you love Jesus and I know you well. No, strangers can look at you and go, man, there's just an anointing on you. There's a peace on you. You are walking with Jesus and I can tell. It's the Holy Spirit. It's identifiable. The Holy Spirit reveals to other believers that he is in you. The Holy Spirit in you testifies to other believers, the Bible says. You don't even have to ask. You don't have to look at their cross. You don't look at the bumper bumper sticker on their car. You can just have a conversation, and, and at the end of that conversation, you've done this and so have I. Can I ask you one question? Could be a business, could be a doctor, could be insurance agent, I don't care. Ask you one question, yeah. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And you just know. They smile. How do you know that? They don't have a Jesus pin on. The Spirit testifies to one another. Remember, we're one body, one Spirit. He'll tell you, He'll show you, He will identify with you what a true believer truly is. Now, there's a rich verse that kind of ties into all this, and I'm going to wrap it up very quickly. Um, turn with me to John chapter 15. One of the richest verses in the Bible. You know it, but I want to talk about it because this ties into the fire. This ties into what we do with the, with the wheat and the weeds. The sifting. You may say, well, Pastor David, how, how do I truly walk as a true believer? How will I never hear those, where, those words, turn away from me, I never knew you? I'm gonna show you how. John chapter 15. I, I forgot to put the verse down, but you're gonna have to find it. Might be the first verse. I am the vine. It's, yeah, all right. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, You can do nothing. And I just want to stop there and just say this to all of you. Without being in a continual, continual, intimate relationship with the Lord, without abiding in him on a daily basis, and what does that mean, abide in him? I simply put it this way. Abiding in Jesus Christ means that you are hearing from him and he is hearing from you. You get it? That's abiding. You are having that heartfelt, intimate conversation with God that draws you closer to him continually and daily. And then if we don't do this, verse six tells us what happens. Look in your Bibles, verse six. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into what? the fire, 
and burned. If you remain in me and my words, my words. If you hide my word in your heart, you don't have to memorize it. Let's not get legalistic. We already talked about that tonight. Let's not get judgmental. I love men who can just quote the verse right off the top of their head. You say a verse and they go, 2 Corinthians 4.2. I'm impressed. That's not me. And, you know, sometimes people flex at whatever. I admire it anyways. It's just, a, it's just a gift I wish I had, but I don't have it. But God hides his word. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my father's, why? Because this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit and you show yourselves to be my disciples. Now, last time I checked, there was only one disciple that wasn't a true believer. That's a whole nother teaching, Judas, right? Judas had a purpose. I believe it was a kingdom purpose. That's a whole nother teaching. And that just fascinates me that Jesus let someone who would betray him walk with him and be intimate with him. It just shows me the grace of God. But we've learned tonight that we are not called to judge others in the church. So then what, what are we called to in the church when we're talking about Susan, Deb, and Steve, and Paula, and Barb, and Gail, and Pete, and Elizabeth, and Jim? What, what are we to do with one another? What do, we, what do we do when we gather together? Well, we're not to judge each other in the church. That's not God's desire. But how are we to treat one another? I have a few verses that I want to close with that I thought that clearly tells us how we're to act, how we're to interact. And you know these, but I think it's good as we leave to refresh our hearts and minds on this, on this very thing. Um, the first thing, I'm just going to, we're going through verses. You can take pictures on the screen. The first thing, First Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore, what? We're to encourage one another. And I love this word, build each other up. Can I ask you tonight, who are you building up in the church? It's not a condemning question. It's, it's, it's a check. It's, this is my church home. When was my last interaction with somebody? Could even be tonight. But did I build them up or did I tear them down? Did I judge them? Or did I edify them? This verse says, we're to build one another up. I love it when men build me up. I sat next to Pastor Dave Folkerts at the pastor staff today. You know what he said to me? He put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, I am so excited that in a few days you're going to Africa. He said, David, you are gonna make an impact in the middle of the world. And your team is going to do marvelous works for the kingdom. And I thought, wow. It was like a rushing wind blowing into me. All this hard work, all this administrative work, all this planning since July for this trip. And he built me up in 30 seconds. 30 seconds, and it was like, that's all worth it. It's worth it. Who are you building up in this church? Who are you building up in this place? 
I'm not perfect, but I want to learn how to build people up. I want to bring encouragement to one another, as it says. Second, what do we do with one another? James 5.16, you may hate this verse, oh well. <laughs> Confess your faults to one another and what? Pray for one another. Do you know why I love prayer culture? Quite frankly, it just messes with my schedule 6 a.m., are you kidding me? And then live in West Melbourne. Right, Caleb? Live in Vieira. Amen, brother. 3.50 a.m., alarm goes off. Really? But do you know why I love prayer culture? It forces me to pray for people. It forces me. I kick and scream. My heart changes by Wednesday. I'm so delirious by Wednesday. I just like, we're caught up in the Holy Spirit. Whatever happens here happens, right? And the love of Christ comes in during prayer culture. And we learn, and we grow, and we pray, and we find out things that we never knew about one another. I'm suffering. I want change in my life. Will you pray for me? But see, in order to do this with one another, in order to truly do what God's desire is for us to do, instead of judging and tearing each other down, we have to, it just requires humility. If we're gonna pray for one another, it requires all of us to, to walk in humility. We have to be transparent to one another. We have to have a willingness to repent to Jesus and then be willing to be restored oneself to the Lord. I had an incredible meeting on Tuesday with a couple in this body. And that's exactly what they did. And I'm so thankful that, that they're on the right path and that they're doing wonderful and marvelous things. Look at the next slide, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season. What's that word? We don't like it. Say it louder. Correct. Correct. Rebuke and icing on the cake. Eat the icing first. There's vegetables hidden in that one. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful, careful instruction. You know what that tells me? Be sensitive. Be gentle. Be mindful. Be loving when we correct and when we rebuke. I want to tell you, don't confuse correction, correction with judgment. Correction is not judgment. Some of you think it is, and that's part of the problem why people get mad at the pastor or the leader or the person or the neighbor or the sister in the church. They just leave the church because they don't understand the purpose of correction in the body of people. They think they're being judged, and they leave the church. They flee because they don't want to be judged. I get it. But if we correct properly, they'll never leave the church. We'll never have anybody leave the church because of it. But I want you to understand correction and judgment is not the same action, nor is it the same meaning. Correction, listen, is an action that you implement because, get this, you care for that person. You correct somebody because you love them. You Parents, you correct them because you love your children. It means that correction comes because we love one another. 
We want God's best for them. And our desire and our goal for correction is to steer someone back, back to the ways of the Lord. That's the whole point of correction, right? But judgment, (laughs) if we take on God's role, as we learned, to judge someone, then I say this, all it simply means is that we impose our righteousness on them without willing to do anything about it to help them change. Let me say that again. When we take on God's role to judge someone, all it simply means is that we impose our perceived righteousness, our laws, our maturity onto someone else without the willingness to do anything about it to help them change. That's what judgment is. And I'm sorry if there's someone here that, or someone listening on our podcast that has been a victim of that. You're probably not at that church anymore if that truly happened. And I'm sorry, because that is not what correction's all about. That's pure, outright judgment. John 13, 34 on the screen, you see it. And now I give you a new commandment, finally, that you do what? Love one another. God's desire is that we love one another. If we're gonna be in the family of God and if we're gonna be identified as true believers, then the Bible says that they will truly identify my disciples by their love. We are to love one another. I'm working on it. I'm working on loving on people and I'm really enjoying it. I really am. I'm learning to try to overlook things. I still get amped up. My friends that are close to me go, turn down an A, you know, triple A? They go, turn down an A, turn an A down. Remove an A, but I'm learning to love. I'm learning, and, and I've been tested. Steve back there knows, and Steve up here knows. I've been tested, and I'm learning to love. I'm learning on to love on someone. I'm learning to love, and I do love him. I love him, and I'm learning. God is just taking me to task on this, right? And I hope that God teaches and demonstrates to you. I love this verse. Quickly throw that verse up there, the picture. ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> Anybody hear that verse? Yeah, yeah. Look at that. Some of you northerners are like, I'm glad I ain't burning that tonight in the winter. <laughs> Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye but do not perceive the wooden beam in your own eye? Man, that's the best remedy, the best medicine to come against judgment. That's the best thing. And I'm so glad. It sounds so different. I'm so glad that's a verse in the Bible. Because you know what that's talking about. Let me, put it, let me put it to you in my own words. You know what this verse really means to me? You work on you, and I'll trust God to work on the other person. Right? I'll work on me, and I'll trust God to work on you. That, that's all that is. That's all that means. Don't look at me. Don't look at my flaws, and don't judge me. I'll work on me. You work on you. Can we disagree? And then we just walk away from that conversation. Next time someone judges you, I dare you to quote that verse. I dare you to gently go, you know what, you're right. I'm gonna work on me. But I'm trusting God to work back on you, right? And mean it, right? And they'll never judge you again. Or if they do, they won't do it to your face. (laughs) 
The last instruction that God has for his people to do together is found in Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Let's talk about teach. You know, teaching is not just for me up here. Teaching is for every single one of you. You may say, well, I'm not a teacher. That's not my gift. You don't need a gift to teach. All you have to do is share what God has shown you in your walk with him. You are automatically qualified and licensed to be a teacher in the kingdom of God. And all of you have stories. All of you have things that you can teach other believers in the body. No excuses, none whatsoever. You have the ability to teach because you've walked with Jesus Christ, amen? That's what this is saying. Share what you've learned from walking with God. Come alongside a new person here or a new believer. Love on them. Open your life up to them. Disciple them. You know that word admonish? Sounds like such a bad word. It's not a bad word. Admonish simply means to warn, to warn or reprimand someone else. You know how you do that in the, in the body of Christ? You do it in private. You pray about it, and you pray about it, and you pray about it again, and then you find a way to lovingly come alongside. It's so much easier when they're in your group or they're your sphere of influence, right, Betty? And I know you've had to do that because we prayed. but it's because you care. You warn them. Why? Because you love them. So let's close. Ultimately, it is not the job of the church to judge or to weed out those who appear to be Christians but actually aren't. It's not our job. We don't have to figure that out. We need to leave the judgment day to the Lord. That's his job, not ours. Don't take his job away. He will, he will give you unemployment real quick. <laughs> Don't take his job away. And I wanna share this. In my 20 years and 10 years on staff, I've often had people come to me and say, Pastor David, is so-and-so really saved? Do you wanna know how I answer them? <laughs> I respond this way the same way every time. I say, I, I don't know. Only God knows the heart of man. But I'm glad I don't have to judge. And I'm glad that I don't have to make that decision or determine his destiny. My job is to simply love on people, lead people, and teach people the ways of the Lord. Amen? I challenge you, don't ever question somebody's salvation. That is between them and the Lord. The Bible talks about the fruit. You'll know them by their love. You'll know them by their, their fruit. Yes, and, and that's true. But just like me, you all have a bad day. And if I'm being recorded by one of you, you're gonna go, that guy's not a believer. He lost his cool today. There's no fruit in that video. <laughs> Be careful. 
Only God knows the heart. That's why Jesus said, turn away from me. I never knew you. Only God knows. So let's not be a judgmental church. As we grow, as changes are coming, let's be a church when we have an unbelievable number of new people who are gonna come in this place. Let's love them where they're at. Let's help disciple them. And let's make the kingdom of heaven build another floor. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and we thank you for this teaching tonight. (laughs) God, we thank you that your word is rich, it's true, it's permanent, and it's hidden in our hearts. God, thank you that if we needed our steps or our thoughts over this subject is redirected now. God, create in us a pure heart this evening. May we walk out of this place in peace, knowing that because we are truly true believers, and what do I mean by that? It means that we've repented, we've received you, and we let you be Lord of our lives, that we never have to stand before that other judgment. If there's anyone here or listening on the podcast, next time you come to a service, just go to a pastor. Talk to them, share with them. If you're here tonight and you need to talk, I'm right up here. We love you, Lord, tonight. Thank you for your rich word. And we love all those that are here tonight. Bless them (coughs) immensely. Go before them. And we thank you for it. We give glory to your name in Jesus' name and his whole family said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you Sunday. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of Intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 1045 a.m., and Wednesdays at 630 p.m.